Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Uh, apologies for getting this up a day late. Uh, I had a great family day yesterday, which kind of detracted from my own mindset. Uh, hence, I'm doing the podcast on Monday. And a heartfelt thank you to uh, several of the families who came from different parts of the country uh, this past weekend. I had a great time with you guys uh doing evals interacting with you and you guys uh went to some cool places in boston and in mass you know different parts of massachusetts so uh many thanks and i always try to make sure i i uh start each one of these episodes with uh the gratitude and humility and appreciation for allowing allowing myself and at various points uh, Julie to come into your lives and be a part of your own mental health journey, whether you are someone suffering with a diagnosable mental health condition, you are in relation with somebody with a diagnosable mental health condition, um, you are a student or practitioner in the field. Uh, that's been really fun talking to um, students who have gotten into graduate programs and I know coordinating the timing uh, of getting in contact with each other, we wind up texting and emailing back and forth. But uh, for those of you who I'm not connected with, uh, at least by phone in terms of the actual conversation, keep reaching out to me and texting me is always the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, it's a little tough, uh, still trying to figure out how to reach our audience uh, on the other side of the world with you know Australia and New Zealand. But we'll figure it out as we go. Uh, but again, thank you, as always, for your continued support. And I appreciate the comments and the feedback and the suggestions. And I'm returning to a topic again because this is the one that gets the most amount of uh, – one of the areas I have a lot of interest in. I One area that you know that you, if you've followed the program that I um, – I, the small group of individuals that I treat is borderline personality disorder. And I, I'm just uh, going to revisit it again because uh, I think as I've approached this in the last several episodes, and we've done a few different things in, in between, but I, I'm bringing this back to give a better understanding of uh, something that is incredibly frustrating for me. And I, and I think I wanted to revisit this because one of the uh, – one of the individuals I saw over the weekend and talked with, with, with their mother, uh, one of the clinicians had said, you know, um, something along the lines of uh, shouldn't diagnose borderline in any adolescent girl because they're all borderline. And it just struck me as like, you know, that's a ridiculous comment and based nowhere in fact or research or, or, or data. Um and I felt it just really did a lot of disrespect to a specific individual and diminishes the integrity and the gravity of a disorder that has, uh, and I've said this before and I will continue to say this, that is treatable and curable depending on your level of insight, level of motivation, and willingness to get uncomfortable and make changes in your life. So, again, I, I, I want to just kind of separate uh, two types. I know I did the, the, we did the four types. Uh, again, the non-clinical version, but the witch and the queen, the waif, and the uh, hermit it is just a framework for trying to uh, understand the different types. Uh, it's, it's, it's a working model just to give a conceptual framework. Um, 
But today we're going to kind of, you know, I, I pull this information from just uh, from books and from uh, stuff I have on my desk and stuff in our library, just stuff uh, in my, my day-to-day work and kind of separating, um, you know, I really always defer and I really like the individuals who did the book uh, Stop Walking on Eggshells and I give them a lot of credit um, and it, it has helped in, in terms of feedback that I've gotten for people. Well, I, think, I think I should probably get a royalty fee for probably how many books people have bought from this, but be that as it may, uh, I find it an incredibly valuable tool, not only for individuals in relationship. Uh, with somebody with borderline personality disorder, but also I've recommended it and, and, and have had good success with people who've had borderline, who have borderline personality disorder to give them some insight into the impacts and the effects, depending on where they fall on this continuum of, of borderline, uh, borderline personality disorder. So kind of kind of separate borderline into, into high functioning, uh, borderline versus, uh, low functionings and, and the high functioning, Borderlines tend to do they tend to do more acting out behaviors, and low functioning borderlines uh, tend to engage in more acting in behaviors. So, uh, without um, without being disrespectful, I'm just using the term borderline just for the sake of conversation. Uh, without, I don't want to take away from the seriousness and the gravity um, of this of this disorder uh, because it does range. And I hate this term, you know, this, the spectrum, these continuums and all these new terms that people come up with. Like, so, you know, I, I stick to the clinical stuff. I, I stick to the stuff that's in our, 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 our empirically based peer re, peer reviewed journal articles and, and whatnot. And I think that's what our field should remain committed to, as opposed to gravitating to all this different type of terminology. All right. So high functioning, uh, borderlines. These are individuals who tend to have episodes of raging and raging can take a vast, uh, many different faces. Uh, so rage can take the form of, of physical aggression, of verbal aggression, of throwing a, you know, a, a wine glass across, the, across the room. Um, whereas the low functioning borderlines, they have episodes more of self harm. So where the, the out, acting out is going outward and raging, projecting onto someone else, the low functioning is engaging in, in what term I would use is what's called intrapunitive. They are, they're blaming themselves and engaging in uh, self-harm, for example. And according to the research, and I mentioned this probably one of the episodes, there's generally three reasons why people engage in self-injurious behaviors. Important statistic is only 40% of individuals with borderline personality disorder actually engage in self-injurious behaviors. 60% of people who engage in self-injurious behaviors do not have borderline personality disorder. And I think there's what we call a, there's a term called diagnostic overshadowing, where you people kind of gra- uh, grab onto a specific symptom. And they, they then gate a lot of other things and just kind of focus on that. But I see this a lot when people who've had or have a history of trauma and they're, they're telling their clinician about trauma and that the, the, and the clinician thinks that's exactly where you need to go. And if you don't know how to do trauma work, you can cause a lot more damage than you can good. Uh, but trauma work is, and that is a whole separate version. And I need to get at some point one of our really close friends and colleagues on to talk about a very specific technique for treating trauma. I treat it from a cognitive behavior perspective. Uh, she treats it from a different therapeutic modality of what's called EMDR, but I will let at that time, let her speak to that. And there is Julie in the background making noise. So one of the three reasons um, is you think of how you get rid of a headache. 
uh, you drop a hammer on your foot. So you transfer the physical pain or for the pain in your head to the pain in your foot. So psychologically, psychiatrically, I transfer the emotional pain that I perceive I cannot control to a physical pain that I perceive I can control. A second is a form of self-punishment. I deserve to hurt. I deserve to feel pain. Uh, a third is I feel so numb. I want to feel something and I need a release. And I would add one more uh, that I've observed, uh, attention-seeking behaviors. Okay. All right. Second one for the high functioning acting out. Uh, these individuals typically are able to hold a job and uh, generally one with uh, a high degree of responsibility. Um, where the low functioning borderline, they have a, there's an inability to hold a job for any length of time. Uh, and they generally work below their, their capacity level, uh, because there's a lot more, uh, I think effective chaos and, and, and mood symptoms. And I should also add with part of that acting in behavior with, with low functioning borderline is, uh, threats of suicide or actual attempts. And I've said this in other episodes with different disorders. If you are a clinician, if you are a parent, if you are, any type of healthcare provider, if you are a friend, if suicide is something that you are concerned about, always, always, always err on the side of caution. Call your local emergency services, call your local police department, because something, you know, I, I've, I've told parents this, kids can deal with parents who are angry. Or parents can deal with kids who are angry. They can't deal with kids who are dead. Uh, so err on the side of caution. Um, it, it, it's the safest route. Uh, high functioning borderlines are actually, you know, have, have an ability to maintain, uh, maintain friendships. Um, and, and few people outside the family, uh, really know of the, of the problems. They may think, you know, well, they're kind of like cranky or they're kind of, you know, irritable, but they don't really know the, the, the severity of it. And it's, it's much more of a facade that's put on, um, Whereas, you know, low-functioning individuals, they really have a lot of difficulty with, like, just daily living responsibilities, such, such as shopping, uh, maintaining, you know, a balanced checkbook, uh, taking care of basic daily activities, such as even maybe picking their kids up from work, either because they may be self-medicating with, with substances or they could be um, – you know, uh, inpatient multiple times or doing like a partial hospitalization program. Um, whereas so was back to the, in the, the high functioning, uh, they can act, I would, what I'd say is like, they can act somewhat quote unquote normal. Um, you know, being higher functioning, they're able to kind of hold it together and, you know, maybe interact really well at a dinner party or uh, out to dinner with friends or, or get through the holidays uh, until everybody goes home and then hell hath no fury. Uh, if, if, if some transgression was uh, committed or perceived transgression was committed or something was not done according to what their, their standards are. And, you know, um, you know, this is a problem in relationships all over the place. We, we expect our partners or our children or our siblings or our, our colleagues to know what it is we want from them. Um, and uh, no one's a mind reader. Um, and so it's, it, you know, communication is, is, is key, but the high functioning borderlines can really act, uh, in a sense, again, another term that I dislike, but for the sake of conversation, they can act normal and appear, you know, this is where I, sometimes they can kind of go under the radar. Like 
what do you mean they're diagnosed with borderline? Yeah, that, that's why it's so crucial to get testing. It's so crucial to get the neuropsych available because the, the data that we're able to get and the, the availability of resources um, if, through the testing that we have, you are able to get and access the interpersonal architecture of an individual to be able to decipher this, which is especially beneficial and crucial in the high-functioning borderlines who, who can live a life where the house is perfect and they, they have maids. And, you know, they have a perfect, you know, a great job or their spouse is a good job. And, and the facade and the exterior is, is, is kind of picture perfect Norman Rockefeller. But behind the scenes is, is, is dust and mold and chaos and, and just, just these, these murky waters. Um, so these are the ones that could easily fool people. And, you know, they want to make the differentiation between is it a borderline, is it narcissism, is it histrionic? Could it be all three? Yes. Um Low functioning in individuals with borderline on this continuum, um, they they engage in a lot of unnecessary uh, and dangerous activities. Uh, unnecessarily dangerous activities. I can't read my writing. Um, and this a lot of times uh, can be in the form of hypersexuality. And hypersexuality in in borderline is generally about filling a void. Even if it transcends someone's better judgment or their own willingness or consent or desire, sex almost becomes an emotional currency. And it's different in bipolarity. Again, why testing is so important. In bipolarity, hypersexuality is when someone's in a hypomanic or manic episode, people engage in behaviors that have a high degree of pleasurability, but a high degree for potentially negative consequences. Uh, sexual promiscuity, uh, a lot of times without the regard for protection, uh, whether or not, you know, even committing infidelity, uh, excessive spending beyond their means, you know, driving across three states, staying up for hours on end, feelings of grandiosity, feelings of euphoria, this disproportionate happiness. So borderline and bipolar can look very much alike, but hypersexuality is, it, 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 in terms of doing diagnostics, is a very is a crucial question to ask in terms of what it means for the individual. Because if it's about this high sex drive and there's this pattern with other co-occurring behaviors that have a high degree of pleasurability, that's more generally in the realm of, and it occurs in distinct periods of time, followed by depressive episodes, that's more consistent and akin to a diagnosis of bipolarity. When it's about validation and filling a void... And, and maybe say, I don't want to do this, but if I don't, and that fear of abandonment is the person going to leave if I don't have sex with them. That is more in line with, with uh, borderline personality disorder. So a, a, a crucial determining factor. And sometimes it can be both. It definitely can be both. But it's a really important piece to explore with people, both with men and with women. Um, okay, what else we got? All right, so the high-functioning borderlines, the ones that act out, um, these individuals tend to push others away more than vice versa. Um, remember, borderline is the I love you, I hate you. Um, classic book, and there's some pieces I'll reference at some point in the future. Uh, I hate you, don't leave me. But, you know, this is really, you know, I love you, I hate you. Um, you know, the the... the the dichotomy of the relationship is, you know, when the, when the, when the when the individual in is with borderline personality is a relationship with somebody, they will uh, if they if that a fear of abandonment 
uh, is evoked in some capacity or, or even anger or attention seeking. They push that other person away, whether that's a parent, a sibling, a, a, a lover, a partner, a friend, a colleague. They push them away until that anxiety gets so high that they will retract and and do whatever. And you know, that could be, uh, you know, the high function could be like, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, have sex with you. I'm going to go on vacation with you. Everything's going to be great. I'm sorry. I'm going to therapy. It's never going to happen again. Uh, the low functioning borderline is more likely to be if you don't come back, I'm going to kill myself or, you know, I'm going to kill the kids or whatever. So these, these are, you know, it's not necessarily dangerous people, but these are dangerous terms that you really can't know with any degree of certainty what the person is actually capable of. Um, the high functioning borderlines, they, they, they generally have uh, this facade of perfection in all things. Uh, the way their cars look, the way they dress, the way they get their, you know, getting their nails done, get their hair cut, um, going, you know, working out at the gym, maintaining a certain physique, you know, it, it's all, it's very much a facade. And a lot of the cluster, you know, the cluster B personality disorders, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic are a lot of it is about a facade and an outer appearance where the, where the sense of self is, is, is basically, uh, enhanced or deconstructed by other people and the amount of control, you know, border, antisocial is very much like borderline. The differentiating factor with that is criminal behavior. Uh, but I'll talk about that at a different time, but it, it, it's really about gaining approval from other people and, 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 and gaining, uh, especially with narcissism, histrionic and, and borderline is about, you know, the sense of self, is basically handed over to the world and the person with borderline is basically a passive recipient and the goal of treatment is to, is to help them gain control back and, and the people that I work with that I treat with borderline I make them put on their screensavers and their phones uh, the quote by Maslow that I reference is learn to become independent of the good opinions of other people and I've said this before and I will say this again that I think is, one, is, is when you're getting to the end of treatment in working with borderline personality uh, becoming independent of the good opinions of other people. Um, you know, low-functioning borderlines, they, they, they generally do seek therapy versus the high-functioning. Because if you're putting on a facade of perfection, why would you want to go to therapy? Because therapy, they equate with weakness. And weak people, especially if you're in denial, especially if you're in denial that you even have this pathology, and many of the high-functioning individuals with borderline who have the nice lives, the nice houses, the 2.5 kids, which I've never been able to figure out what a 0.5 person is, um, you know, they're less likely to get into therapy. They generally get into therapy, from my experience, when they're at risk of losing maybe their family or their children or the threat of divorce. There's, there's some perceived threat that they're going to lose something, but they are so scared of what other people are going to think. And you need, that's why you need to be with this very skilled clinician. And again, the neuropsych eval is so crucial because it's going to not only give the diagnosis, but how that symptom, those symptoms manifest specific to that person. And, 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 you know, people could say, they oh, you can fake test, you can fake this. There's no way. So the test, some of the tests we have can tell if you're lying, if you're faking, or you're being overly defensive. And when you get into the projective tests, uh, there's no way you could fake that. Um, there's just no way because it's just the, the, the pure, um, 
authenticity, whether it's pathological or not, of who that specific, who that who that individual is. So the lower functioning individuals, because they go so much inward, uh, and by low functioning, I, I'm not saying anything. This is not about you know you know low IQ or low you know cognitive ability. I mean that could certainly be a possibility, but they're more likely to get into therapy because they're in a lot of pain and they're. You know, sometimes, you know, people with borderline uh, who, who cut, which is the lower, you know, I'm not saying, again, it's not a dichotomous model. It does not mean that people, these, these things can't cross over. I'm just simply trying to draw parallels to give different ways uh, to, you know, some kind of canon of, of, of uh, like pillars, just kind of break this complex disorder down and try to help you guys understand it from different perspectives. Uh, but are there people that are high functioning that get into therapy? Yeah, but it's usually because they're afraid they're going to lose something. Um, but they're not going to be going to uh, the general are going to be going to a therapist that's office. Uh, they're you know they're going to park in a parking lot and their neighbor knows their car, and they're easily going to be spotted there. Um, and uh, the other thing with, with the high-functioning borderline is they, they, they look at others as extensions of themselves uh, rather than separate people with their own needs. Um, so it's almost they look at other people as extensions of themselves in terms of what can you do for me? Uh, how can I? How could you benefit me? How could you serve my need? Now, that also sounds very similar to narcissism. It sounds very similar to histrionic. And it sounds very similar to, to uh, antisocial. Again, why the testing is so important, I've said this for the third time, this is what has helped be able to parse that stuff out. It's not just the story someone's going to tell you in 45 minutes or an hour session. But when you see somebody as extensions of yourselves, uh, you you basically almost, uh, you know, you think of the person maybe like uh, that they, if they're an extension, that it's, it's, what, it's about what, what can you do for me? And maybe I'll do something for you, but if you, I'll do something for you if you do this for me and what I'm doing, what they want you to do for them, or you, what you want, what you, what they want you to do for them is generally going to be higher than what you have done for them. It's, it's so the, you know, the, the payoff and the trade off isn't always equal. Um, and, you know, there's a high external locus of control where they blame everybody and they criticize everybody it's the teacher's fault it's my mom's fault it's my grandma's fault it's my my husband he sucks my wife she's awful it's it's everybody else's fault with the high functioning borderline they, they don't take no, no responsibility again if, if, if you take no responsibility why are you going why would you say it makes sense why they're not getting into therapy they have such little insight and you always want to be careful that you're not getting into therapy that these people are not getting into treatment of what i would call um reactionary change and reactionary change is not genuine change it's it's you're reacting to a perceived loss of something and a perceived threat versus a deep uh uh you know in-depth you know conversation and dialogue with yourself with saying look i need to get my stuff together because i'm going to lose my family i'm going to lose my job i'm going to lose my all this and, and 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 not everybody gets there and sometimes it's hard to watch people get to rock bottom and i work with families who had to turn their back on on loved ones because you have to, sometimes you have to love people from afar because this disorder can can suck the life out of not only the individual who's struggling with it, but suck the life out of individuals who are in relationship with them. And I've said this before, you are not responsible to help and cure in these individuals. That is what our job is supposed to do. That is what that is what we do for a living. And with the knowledge and education to be able to do this, but you can't make you can't make anybody with any disorder, you can't make you can't want it more than they do. 
Um, and another thing with the low-functioning borderline is uh, one mistake just leads to a generalization that they are just a complete failure. And, you know, they're much more prone to, uh, like I said, suicidal ideations, uh, suicide attempts, whether they're uh, attention-seeking or they're deliberate attempts. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's still an attempt. Uh it's it's you you see the depression more often you'll see the affect which is kind of the um affect is spelled like it's like effect but affect is really the uh outward emotional expression so we sometimes you know person comes in describe them as uh euthymic very happy dysthymic affect is constricted affect is flat uh affect is labile so there's a lot of different terms to use to describe affect but you with 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 the individuals with um uh, i i guess from doing you know working in this field for as as long as I have, which again, not that old, but doing this and being very, very well trained, um, you're good enough to be able, when you talk to somebody on the phone or you talk to somebody when they first come in, you get a pretty good sense uh, if, if this what if this is the pathology that you think you might be dealing with, what category this person's, this person's um, coming in. The high-functioning one's coming in with Louis Vuitton. The other one's coming in with a target bag. Not to be pejorative or anything like that, but um, it's, is one better than the other? No, but I, but I do think... Again, being on a continuum. Um, again, I don't like I don't like these terms, but we're just going to use it because it's it's in our vernacular and our in our our dialogue. Um, it does run a gamut, but it's not split evenly down the middle. It doesn't mean one can cross over to the others. It's just a way to kind of help under help you guys understand that it could present in two very different ways. So I gave you the examples of uh, of the four subtypes. Like I said earlier, but these are two other ways to differentiate borderline from high functioning to low functioning. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I would say a third. And this is just this is a non-clinical term. Uh, what we what we would call industrial strength borderlines. And these are individuals who wear their disorder like it's the most comfortable coat in the world, yet they complain about it every minute of the day. They complain about the manufacturer who made it, uh, about the people who sewed it, about the, the designer, but um, and yet they never want to take it off. Even though they complain about it, they, they wear it because it, it ironically gives them some sense of comfort, and sometimes people are... are comfortable in their dysfunction and these are the ones that call julie every two weeks that my meds aren't working these are the people that are going inpatient every two three weeks and complaining and and these are the ones you know i say that borderline is treatable and curable yes but if you're in that category it's not because they're, they're not ready for change and they and as i've said ad nauseum the the, the catalyst for change is you have to be uncomfortable until you get to places to say I'm tired of thinking, feeling, and acting this way. Change is not going to occur. And yes, is this a hard disorder to watch people struggle with? Absolutely. But I could tell you from experience and the people that I've worked with, and it's not my own. I don't take any credit for this, but I I, I believe in the the, the skills that I have, and I believe in the people that I work with, and through the work that they've done, have been able to overcome great obstacles and have changed their lives miraculously. And I've had so many people reach out uh, wanting to come on the podcast and tell their stories about how they overcame borderline through treatment. 
And it, you know, it, 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 so, uh, you know, I'm not selling a, a fantasy here, but I, I, I am giving you factual data that with the right treatment and, and the right, uh, sometimes medication, uh, this is something that can be overcome. So hopefully this was helpful to kind of give you some, uh, just a different way to delineate high functioning from low functioning, but not in the sense of any term things of, of cognitive capacity, although that may be a co-occurring factor. So, I just so, wanted to jump on and add, I'm not saying too much, but I think from a provider's, a med provider's standpoint, um, even a therapist standpoint, not everyone can get neuropsych evals. So my thing is, and I think I can speak from all of my colleagues, and I want to educate the public is, and really hone in on this specifically, is talk to your providers. If your meds aren't working, so when when we don't when I get a client that has not had neuropsych testing done and I'm putting them on and I kind of have the gist and I kind of thinking I'm chasing symptoms and I'm treating and if I get to the point where nothing is working it's really that's that's a huge red flag in terms of what is medicatable and what isn't and I think it doesn't do anyone um, I think it does does people a disservice not to diagnose borderline personality at a younger age. And I think depending on what side of the Charles River you're on in Massachusetts, there are people that believe that you can be diagnosed as an adolescent, whereas um, I think 18 is technically the cutoff point for a lot of diagnosticians out there uh, and people in practice. That being said, I think because of that, people are not getting treated early enough so that when you're dealing with someone who's an adolescent, they're much younger, you know, and they, they're easily treatable. Um, especially when you, you know, the sooner you learn, like earliest inter intervention makes sense, right? doesn't always work out that way. But if you notice that no meds are working and people are trying to take their meds, if things are just not working in the medication department, you got to consider personality and, I hate the term disorder. I really do. I hate the term pathology. I just feel like just keep in mind that this is a way in which people move through life because of the conditions that they were in. And it, it's a matter of survival and it's a skill set. It's not always a functional skill set, but it's a skill set that serves people to get through life, to survive. And, and that is destigmatizing. Um, and that is one of our goals in the podcast. Anyway, thank you so much for all of your support. Please don't DM us on Instagram. We're not getting them. Please feel free to reach out to Core on his cell phone via his email. We will get back to you. Um, happy to collaborate again, always talk to a provider. Um, Start with your primary care uh, if you don't have a psych provider. Men, as saying again, the emergency room is always open. So thank you for listening to me, and I appreciate you. God bless you all. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for another fun week. Uh, feel free to reach out to me through Psychology Today. Uh, get a hold of me through psychologyunplugged at outlook.com. Uh, 
I think our email for our website is finally up and running, uh, which I don't think we've ever mentioned, which uh, this is Julie's term uh, that she came up with. We first, first started a private practice, which is Inward Bound Psych. Uh, so you can easily, you can check us out at inwardboundpsych.com.net, all the different dots, um, and uh, see about stuff and get, getting a hold of me or scheduling a consult or a neuropsych eval. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, a psychology unplugged. Under, uh, psychology underscore unplugged underscore uh you can contact me directly 617-750-9411 east coast standard time in the united states uh, I, we do the best we can i know we're two people trying to change an entire field but to create an awareness an awakening uh a, a passion and uh, y- you know it, it's um it's an ongoing process that I have dedicated my life to. I think I could speak safely for Julie um, and as well as a lot of our colleagues. And um, it's a pleasure. And thank you for taking this journey with us. And uh, someday I hope to get to meet Bruce Springsteen. So um, that's my own personal wish. And uh, I hope you guys take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Bye.